Join me in a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. And please be seated. Good morning and welcome. My name is Peter Schwanda, and as of last Saturday, I serve as a deacon here at Christ the King. Thank you for allowing me that cue. I was reflecting this week uh, about how much I think that I like the wilderness. Adventurous trips, the great outdoors. I grew up in Maine, went to school in Montana, and that encouraged this love. And one of my favorite trips was several years ago when I went to Glacier National Park with my father. We planned for several months. We would fly, rent a car, drive hours towards the Canadian border, and we would try to time our arrival just after the average 16 feet of snowfall had melted enough to plow the roads. We had to reserve campsites months in advance. We had to apply for a permit to be able to hike into the backcountry to spend the night. And this was all before we packed our bags. Extra food, water, sleeping bag, tents, emergency supplies. And since my dad is an Eagle Scout, even more food and more water and more supplies, just in case an injury or weather extended our trip. Had to bring a water filter in case we ran out of water. And we had to bring pepper spray in case we encountered a potential attack from a grizzly bear. It turns out I only like the wilderness when I can plan for what to expect. I'm a little less like Bear Grylls in Man vs. Wild and a little bit more like John Candy in the great outdoors. You might be the same. Today's our third Sunday in our series, Lessons from the Wilderness. Three months of exile from our normal worship location, months of pandemic restrictions, it feels like wilderness. Not a nice getaway with time to prepare, but unexpected challenges, isolation, and anxiety. We've been reminded of what wilderness meant for Israel, scarcity, need, and problems. And in Exodus 16 and 17, they had problems. No food, no water, and now they're under attack. Verse 8 in our reading says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. See, the Amalekites were Israel's perennial enemy. They were nomads in the desert, and they made their living by preying on neighboring peoples and living off the spoils. Unprovoked, they attacked Israel. And so this is our question today. What do we do when we are under attack? Now, for many of us, attack from enemies in battle is not something we're familiar with. So I want to have you consider what other forms of attack we face. The physical attack of illness and pandemic spiritual attack against our faith, mental attack of anxiety and depression, emotional attack of toxic relationships. While we may not face nomads in battle, catastrophe, crisis, financial loss, unemployment, illness, and anxiety are common. Real wilderness and adversity teaches us lessons, like dependence on God's provision as Darren and Maggie shared. And today, we learn about two things, strategy and strength. Turn to our passage and consider Moses' strategy. When confronted with attack, his planning is both practical and prayerful. Practically, 
he tells his leader Joshua to choose men to go out and fight the enemy. But Moses isn't being a coward by retreating to the hilltop at a safe distance. He's joining in the battle. He brings his two leaders, Aaron and Hur, to the top of the hill, and he brings his walking stick. But not just any stick. This is the staff of God. The same staff he had with him when he encountered God at the burning bush. The staff that God turned into a snake and then back into a staff. The same staff that Moses raised up over the Red Sea when God parted the waters. The same staff that he struck the rock with as Moses or the, as God provided water miraculously. Remember that in the Bible, lifting up your hands to the heavens was a sign of prayer and praise. And so Moses lifts this staff to the heavens, pleading prayerfully with the Lord for deliverance. So when we're confronted with attack or crisis, do we pray or get to work? You've likely heard the adage, pray like it depends on God, work as if it depends on you. Now, trite sayings don't make great theology, but Moses had learned some lessons from the incidents with the manna and the water. He knew that we are to depend on God, and so he lifted his hands. But the Bible doesn't celebrate a lack of practical action. We're called to pair our faith with deeds. If you're faced with illness, see a doctor. If you're faced with pandemic, take the appropriate steps. When faced with attack, take practical action. Moses sends the troop into battle knowing that it will take God's provision for victory. And Moses prays. Prayer gives us perspective. It gives us something closer to God's vantage point. Just as Moses' distance up on the hillside gave him a perspective to what God was doing in the battle. And prayer shows our trust in God's provision. So when under attack, Moses' strategy was practical and it was prayerful. They went into battle and Moses lifts his hands. And in the words of a song I learned as a kid, and when they were up, they were up, and when they were down, they were down. So where does this strength for victory come from? Why is it that as Moses' hands are lifted up to the Lord, they had victory? There's clearly spiritual power at work here as Moses seeks the Lord's favor. But Moses wasn't some king on a chariot on the hill, just a pretty face to encourage the troops below. Moses was a warrior in battle. This prayer was tiring work spiritually and physically, and he was weak like us. A friend challenged me to a workout challenge during pandemic, and our quarantine challenge has included planks, where you hold up your body on your arms, rigid, for a long time. Today, three minutes, 10 seconds. Those of you who do yoga or are more fit than me know that holding yourself in any position for a length of time is hard. And Israel's batter, battle was longer than three minutes. Look at your passage. It lasted all day until the going down of the sun. Verse 12 reads, So they took a stone and put it under him, Moses, whose hands were dropping, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, 
and the other on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So first, in this battle, in this attack, the strength of God was at work because prayer is powerful and God gave victory in a battle they should have lost. And secondly, the strength of God's people is at work. Helping Moses to bear a burden that he couldn't bear alone. For God's glory, a couple of friends helped lighten the load. Now think back to that trip to Montana, and wouldn't you know it, after 20 miles of hiking, we turned a corner in the trail and stood face to face with a grizzly bear. Not just any bear, a mother bear with three cubs. Potential attack. Now my strategy included some extra food, some extra water, and my strength relied on me being in control. And neither mattered in that moment. Israel ran out of food, they ran out of water, and they weren't in control. But their strategy through Moses was to rely on God and on his strength. Now, when we were preparing for this trip to Montana, I heard somebody tell me that if you're faced with a grizzly, you just have to be faster. Faster than who? Whoever you're hiking with. <laughs> now, when we were confronted with the grizzly, my dad did just that. He turned tail and retreated up the trail. Smart, perhaps. Turns out that can provoke a grizzly. So I drew the pepper spray and I backed away slowly the recommended response, but I'll tell you not much better. Might as well have had a pepper shaker in my hand. So when confronted with attack, what do we do? A little pepper spray and a several hundred pound, possibly angry mama bear was a tough situation. When we're attacked first, we need to know who we are fighting. And this is an important distinction for us today as we consider this reading. Our enemies aren't the Amalekites, but our enemies are the three things that new members, as we had last week in our service, renounce. They renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. See, we often fight the wrong enemy in our lives. My friend Dave Zoll wrote a book called Seculosity talking about the ways in which the secular parts of our world have become the new religiosity for us. He talks about the ways that they can distort our reality when we put things other than God as our focus. He talks about romantic relationships and he shares advice that a friend gave him. His friend said, no matter who you marry, their ways of doing things will be opposite of yours. And when Dave got married, he writes, the tiniest points of friction will come to occupy disproportionately vast emotional space. So much so that it often feels like you're coming from 100 degree, 180 degree opposing vantage points. Quarantine has meant close quarters for all of us, but your spouse, your family, your roommates are not your enemies. In his book, Zal also addresses politics, and when politics are our only reference point, it's easy to get worked into a self-righteous fury 
about our opponents. We talk in absolutes, which create enemies instead of unity. It's no wonder that people often avoid politics at cocktail parties. They want to make friends, not enemies. So I want to remind you, the person sitting next to you on the lawn who has differing political views is not your enemy. And in our present cultural moment, with racial division and tension, your enemy is certainly not a child of God with different color skin, created in the image of God. And it is not other Christians who are seeking to respond faithfully out of love and compassion and desire for God's justice. Remember, the enemy of God and God's people are those who oppose God, not just those who oppose you or me. And if a person is your enemy, remember Jesus' commands to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. See, our enemies aren't primarily people, and I would contend they're not even primarily ideas, as some would say. Our enemies are the world and its corrupting forces, our heart's sinful desires, and the devil. And not just one, but all three. If we think that it's just the world, we might retreat like the Amish, and we're still left with sin and the devil. If we think it's just the devil, we see the devil around every corner, and we ignore our own sinfulness. And if we think that it's just sin, we wallow in our own guilt, and we don't live in God's grace. So it's important to know who is attacking, because then we can strategize practically and prayerfully. And so we pray, asking God to battle the devil and to transform our hearts and our world. In our homes where sinful attitudes can cause friction in relationships, we seek clear communication and we pray. In our politics, where a post-Christian world pushes us towards division instead of unity, we seek conversation and common ground, and we pray. And in our country, where the devil and where individual and generational sin result in racism, we take practical steps and we pray. We seek God's strength in prayer, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. And we seek God's strength working through brothers and sisters in Christ who can ease our burdens, whether emotionally or simply by providing a listening ear or a meal. Let's turn back to our passage and see the outcome of the battle. If you look back at verse 13, we see the Amalekites were defeated by God and his people. And the result for Moses and Israel is praise. First, they strategize, they rely on the strength of God and his people, and then they praise God. God tells Moses to write this as a memorial in a book and to recite it so that they will not forget where their strength came from. It says, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. 
But then it says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. When I first read that, I found that quite discouraging. The battle isn't over. There will be more attacks. There will always be attack in the wilderness for God's people. Generational sin is something that occurs throughout Scripture and we see in our world. Because the enemy of God will always oppose God. But this line that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation isn't discouraging. It's a promise. The Lord, who was faithful to Moses in this moment, will be faithful from generation to generation. The Lord will continue to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I want you to consider this morning, in what way do you feel under attack? Something weighing you down physically, spiritually, emotionally? Whatever it is, follow Moses' simple example. Make a strategy that is both prayerful and practical. Seek the strength of God at work and God at work through his people, the church. And finally, praise the Lord, because in Jesus Christ, victory is secure. God will not let you be destroyed, but will fight for you in his power as we faithfully walk step by step. We'll close with our final hymn that has been our anthem for this series, Step by Step, which can be found on page 24 of your service leaflet.